Luke 15. We've read the passage already. We will certainly not uh, be able to finish um, this parable. It's rich with meaning for us today, and I hope it's I hope it's a real strengthening and encouraging time for us in His Word. We all have our favorite short stories, probably. Uh, I like O. Henry stories because they always have a little twist at the end. Uh, I, I listened to a radio program from the 40s called The Whistler. Ever heard The Whistler? Do, 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 do. It's like a murder. It's kind of a suspenseful thing. There's always a special twist at the end. 25 minutes, nice little podcast for me. My favorite, though, is a short story called The Lottery. Anybody ever heard that short story called The Lottery? We read it in 11th grade English class. It was about this little town that had a lottery every year, and, and the, it, it started out, and the whole town was uh, just a great little community, and everybody loved each other and had the women talking about each other and about their children. And then they're coming to the lottery where they're all grabbing papers out of a box, and they're, the one with the marking on it would win the lottery, but the lottery was for who would be stoned to death. That's the story. And there's a line in the story that it, there's this lady named Mrs. Delacroix because there's a line in the story where she's talking to the lady who's now going to be put to death beforehand. Like they were good buddies talking about, oh, this is going to be great. Now, now the lady who's going to be killed with the stones, Mrs. Delacroix picked up a stone so large she could barely lift it with both hands. I remember that line from the story. It's just a shocking story that this community, as they're, as they're going to the lottery, they're all excited and happy, and then they find out the person's going to die, even, their, even that woman's own children threw stones at her. We all have our favorite short stories. I'm not sure why that's mine, but it is. This short story by our Lord was not necessarily written, but was first told by Jesus Christ, and it may be the most familiar short story he ever told. Even the unbelieving world is familiar with it and certain lines from it, and so it's going to be our joy to study. But let's start with two introductory points. I have so much to say today, and I don't want to be here till 1 o'clock, so let's get right after it. Two very important introductory thoughts about our study. First, let's, number one, be focused on the key thought. Let's be focused on the key thought of the parable. What is a parable? Now, if you grew up in church, you may have at one time heard that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That's kind of a simplistic way of saying it. The word parable simply means you can hear para. We, para means to come alongside, and we, we use that even in our, our own language, parallel. You know, we have this idea. So a parable is a story or something that is laid aside something else to illuminate that thing. The basic meaning of the word parable is to lay alongside. So what a parable teller did was take something that was very familiar and lay it aside something that was not so familiar so that the knowledge about the thing that is familiar will shed light on the thing that was not familiar. I know that sounded like double talk, but, but that's what a parable is. You know about something... And, and you equate it to something that may not be quite as familiar. And most parables are simply extended metaphors or similes. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's, it's just meant to be a, 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 uh, a way to shed light on something that may not be understandable. A parable is not an allegory. In other words, every part of the prodigal son does not have some sort of secret hidden meaning. 
We are not going to uncover that the pig slop actually means something. And some in some books I've written, uh, not written, I've read, uh, the ring means something, the shoes mean something, the calf means something, and we have to find some sort of uh, tidbit of information in every single part of it. Now, the parable is expanded in comparisons to some other parables that the Lord told, so there is going to be some rich detail for us but we got to keep focused on the main thought of the parable. What is the main thing Jesus is trying to teach? Secondly, let's be familiar with the context. So let's be focused on the key thought, and then let's be familiar with the context. Jesus told this story at a certain time to certain people, and there will be aspects of the parable that would be lost to us if we don't realize and remember that. And whatever Jesus meant on that day is what it still means today. We cannot, uh, we cannot do like some like to do and bring the story into our culture and talk about what it means in our culture, like if we had a wayward son who went away and did certain things and then we reacted a certain way. What we have to do is take 2019 and put it back here and find out what would these listeners know inherently just because they lived in that culture, what would they know inherently that we have to kind of bring to the forefront of our minds? For instance, these, the, most of the people who were listening to Jesus would be classified as what? Ethnicity. Jewish. And when Jesus says that the Jewish boy was feeding pigs, that's a cultural thing that we should understand would be just an abomination to the listeners. That's just one example. There's other things that we'll, we'll tie into as well. So we have, to, we have to take some time to kind of research and remember that. So let's pray about these two things, not, not actually pray, but let's be praying and prayerful about these two things as we jump into this parable. First of all, let's ask the Lord to help us to see ourselves in the parable. Who are we? What person are we like? What lesson is there for me? And then, of course, most of all, to see Christ as the Savior of those who will repent of their sins. So let's talk about a little bit about regarding the background and context, and let's think about two major things. Okay, those were two kind of introductory points. Now let's think about two major things for a minute. Let's talk about the mission of Christ and the malice of his enemies. The mission of Christ and the malice of his enemies. Let's start with his, his mission. In the sovereign plan of God, from all of eternity past, even before man fell. In the unity of the Godhead, there was a decree that the Son of God would give himself to redeem sinful man. In other words, the solution to sin was decreed before the problem was even presented. God, in all of his sovereignty, planned from eternity past for his Son to redeem and reconcile sinful man. 1 Peter 1, 19 and 20 says this, the precious blood of Jesus Christ, that's what we were redeemed with. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Foreknown there is not a word that simply means God was aware of something that would happen or God simply knew the future. The word means that God favorably and deliberately chose and ordained his son to come and redeem sinful human beings. In Genesis 3.15, after man falls, 
We have immediately after that a promise of salvation when God says that, the, that there will come someone from the seed of the woman who will be bruised by the serpent on his heel, but he is going to crush that serpent. And he did so. Colossians 2.15 tells us he triumphed over his enemies in the death of his cross. He came and conquered our great enemy, sin and death. Through the rest of the Old Testament after that, from the moment of the fall of man and the announcement of the Proto-Euangelion in Genesis 3.15, that is the first mention of evangelism, the first mention of the gospel. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, the, the Messiah and his mission is predicted. When you think about the letter to the Romans, Paul begins it by saying, Paul, uh, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection of the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul says, this is something, this gospel that I've been set apart to, to present to you, is something that God has shared with us in his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, Isaiah 53 is a clear presentation of the mission of the suffering Messiah. Luke 24, verse 44 to 47, Jesus opens the Scriptures to the disciples on the road to the Emmaus, the day of his resurrection, and says, I will, he doesn't say it this way, but he expresses himself to them from the law and the prophets. Psalm 22 is a beautiful prediction of the cross work of Jesus Christ. All of the apostles or all of the prophets are continually predicting and pointing us to something that they didn't even understand. Peter says that they were writing about something that they longed to understand. They knew it wasn't for their time. But they wrote it for our benefit that we now look back and see that this mission of the Messiah, the mission of Christ, was ordained in eternity past, predicted in the Old Testament, and then when he is announced to be in the womb of the Virgin Mary, his name is even predicted. You will call his name Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sin. So important that he told Mary to name him Jesus and he told Joseph to name him Jesus, both times saying because he will save his people from their sins. Then as Jesus begins his public ministry, Somewhere in the age of 30 to 33, he announces that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and the major need of mankind is to repent. And then he begins to instruct them what that means. That's the history of salvation for us. God ordained a Savior for sinful men and he ordained it to be his son, Jesus Christ, who then was predicted and promised over and over came, born of the Virgin Mary, begins his ministry. Now, if it is the ministry and mission from all of eternity past and all of, all of man's history that the Son of God would come and reconcile sinners to himself, does it not make logical sense that when this individual was on earth, he would hang out with sinful people? Right? I, I'm here, my whole mission God has ordained it. He was foreknown from eternity past before the foundation of the world to be the redeemer of mankind with his precious blood. And then he's promised, and then he comes. Don't you think he's going to be with sinful people? 
course he is. But because of this, because constantly in the Gospels, we see the Lord welcoming sinners, he begins to face backlash for these priorities and for fraternizing with sinful people of society. Luke chapter 5, verse 30 and 32 say this, as Jesus responds to these kind of uh, accusations, saying, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus knew, of course, that the redemption of sinful men and women would require his own suffering and death, and with one exception, he did not waffle on that mission. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was uh, given up by Judas, or the very night he was given up by Judas, he prayed not my. He prayed that it, the cup would pass from him. He 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 hesitated for a moment, not that he would ever turn back. But we see him in his full humanity there, recognizing what the cost would be to redeem us from our sins, and wished for another way. And knowing there is no other way, he submits himself to the will of God, not my will, but yours be done. So with that one exception, he was determined to fulfill that ministry. He would, in fact, offer himself as a spotless sacrifice for sin, bear the wrath of God for my sin and yours in the place that we deserved. He would die and raise again. And in fact, in Luke, there is a turning point in chapter 9, verse 51, where Luke says he steadfastly set his face towards Jerusalem. And the rest of Luke 9 to 22, until he's crucified, he is moving um, purposefully to fulfill that mission. In Luke chapter 12, these are passages we've already studied, verse 49 and 50, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and I am distressed until it is accomplished. He's speaking about his death. I believe that this occupied his thoughts constantly. He knew this was his mission. And he's, in the meantime, while he's moving towards that end, he is calling sinful men and women to repent. And in doing so, he's incurring the wrath of those who believe themselves to be morally superior to everybody else, the Pharisees and the scribes. Now we move to number two, the malice of the enemies of Christ. His mission, of course, to redeem sinful men. I just walked you through that what about the malice of his enemies? Now, last week, towards the end of the message, we examined Luke 15. Would you look at that real quick? Look at Luke 15, verse 7. Look at verse number 7. We, we just kind of had to rush through that, and I, I want to just step back for just a second. It says in Luke 15, 7, Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. This is something I say a lot, that there are two groups of people in the world, and only two groups of people. There are the righteous and the wicked, there are the sheep and the goats, there are the tares and the weak, there are those on the wide path, those on the narrow path. There's, there's two groups of people, and here we have them pictured again. There are sinners who repent, and there are righteous people who need no repentance. And recall that I said it's not that everybody needs to repent because Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned 
and come short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, no, not one. The need for repentance is universal because sin is universal. So all of us need to repent of our sins. So when Jesus is saying that there are righteous people who need no repentance, you can read into that, think they need no repentance. Think they need no repentance. Think they are righteous. Think they deserve God's, uh, God's goodness and favor just because they are living some sort of meritorious life. In fact, Luke 18, verse 9, just a chapter or two away, Luke 18, verse 9 sheds further light on this as he tells another parable that we'll get to in a little bit uh, as we go through Luke. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That, again, is the two groups of people, and that's referring to the sinners, the, to, the, to the righteous people who think they do not need repentance because they are trusting in their own selves. They are gambling their eternal soul on their own works. That's who Jesus is equating here. Now, let's keeping those two groups of people in mind, always two groups of people, you have the sinners who repent, and then you have the righteous persons who are trusting in their own righteousness and believe they do not need to repent. Now look back at 15, verse 1 and 2 of Luke. It says, here we have another two groups of people. Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled. Now as Jesus is telling this parable, which of the two groups, and you can answer out loud, which of the two groups in Luke 15, verses 1 and 2, would be classified as the sinners who are repenting? Well, in, in just in 15, 1 and 2, just in 15, 1 and 2, those two groups we mentioned that are listening to the parables, which is the group of people that is classified as the sinners who are repenting? The tax collectors and sinners who are doing what? They are drawing near to hear him. Look back up one verse in the previous chapter, 14, verse 35. Just the last phrase, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Listen to this. Who is listening? It is the tax collectors and sinners who are drawing near. Now, I'm not saying as a group they're all repenting, but probably many of them are because they're recognizing their sin. Now, who in the group in 15, 1 and 2 are the righteous who think they need no repentance? Now, this is easy because there's only one group left. Pharisees and scribes fit that group. As so this is why we're talking about context. As Jesus is telling this story he knows what kind of people are listening to it. There are some people out there that are willing to repent, and there are some people out there that are trusting in themselves. And God takes joy in the sinners who repent. He does not take joy in the people who trust in themselves and think themselves to be righteous. The people who are hearing are the tax collectors and sinners. They are obeying the command of Christ in 1435. While the Pharisees and scribes are ignoring. Where are you? Which group do you find yourself in? We'll say more about that in a minute. Jesus is telling these parables, again, to think about, the, be focused on the main thought of the parable. He's telling all these parables, the lost sheep, lost coin, lost sons, to illustrate the truth that God takes joy in reconciling repentant sinners. And the Pharisees and scribes stand opposed to that primarily because they don't think they need repentance. And they don't think... The sinners deserve acceptance. Now, who are these people? Let's do a little more background, please. Who are these people? The scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes were the copiers and interpreters of the law. 
I was just listening to a podcast by Ben Shapiro. You know who Ben Shapiro is. He's a political guy. He's a Jewish individual. He's not a Christian. Um, but he was talking to a pastor, and he, he was talking about his reasoning for trusting in the Old Testament scriptures and his confidence in the scribes. He said, well, well, these are people who are, who are trained in understanding the scripture, and so we have confidence in these individuals that they will explain to us what these things mean. And there's a certain level of truth to that. And, and in a sense, that's the scribes. The scribes are people who, for their life, gave themselves to copying the scriptures. I mean, you didn't, you, didn't go to, you didn't go to Lifeway and grab yourself a Bible. You didn't have a copy. Hey, I'd like a copy of that. Run in the office and you'll make a copy. You had people handwriting these things and carefully interpreting what they all meant. And they also, these scribes, established traditions that were, that were uh, proposed to help them keep the law. Okay? It is these traditions that became elevated to the same authority as the Scripture itself. It's known as the Mishnah, the oral traditions which eventually were written down that, that the Jewish, especially the religious Jews, thought this was as important as the Scriptures. It would be, it would be like us taking a, a, a truth from Scripture and saying, it is important to obey this truth. I wish I could think of an example off the top of my head, but I'm not going to, because I think it would just be silly. Take this truth of Scripture, and then Andy tells you that the way to obey this Scripture is to do A, B, C. You've you got to do this to obey that Scripture. And then all of a sudden, Andy's A, B, C becomes equal with what the Scripture says. So that if you're not obeying how Andy tells you to obey that Scripture, you're not obeying Scripture. That's what's happening in this day. And so you have these scribes who are holding their authority of the law over others and demanding that those who wish to be religious follow not only the word, but follow their customs and traditions. Now, most of these scribes were also Pharisees by their own conviction. Pharisees was a religious sect. Their name actually means separated ones. And they were a group of influential Jews that were committed to enforcing the observance of those traditions. Are you following all this? Okay, this, I know this context, but people like historical movies, people like historical books. I mean, this, this is, this is going to help you understand what's going on. So the scribes would set up these extra-biblical traditions, and the Pharisees are the ones who say, we're going to live by those, and we're going to enforce them. Remember when Jesus says, woe to you, because you make proselytes of yourselves, and you take them further down the ditch? Like, you are talking to the Pharisees, you are taking these cultural traditions and placing them on people that you have no right or responsibility in doing that. And then, if people did not obey their traditions, they promptly denounced them, quote, as sinners. And they set themselves up as the only ones who were righteous. They handed down these extra-biblical customs and then enforced them very religiously. Naturally, then, these who were religious we're very angry with Jesus, our Lord, for entertaining and even gasp eating with sinful people. Now, table fellowship in those days, in other words, having a meal in that culture, was not, was not something that was done unless uh, people were your friends, your family, or they were your cultural superiors. You did not have these type of people in for fellowship. Jesus being called, quote, a friend of sinners 
by the Pharisees is not the blessing that we sing about today for them. It was a biting rebuke from those who thought themselves to be morally righteous and looked down on our Lord for interacting with those sinners. Even though his mission was to come and save sinners, but the group that's looking down on them didn't see themselves as sinners. I hope, I hope that's making sense. I see a lot of this. So I, 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 I hope it's just that maybe you're tired, or, but I mean, I'm just so excited about this and I, I, I want to inflame you about it too. There's two words, of course, that we can use to describe the Pharisees, and you probably have a historical understanding of this. They were legalistic. They believed that by doing these things, by performing these religious tasks and observing these cultural traditions, that they earned God's favor. That's what legalism is. Okay, I've I've had people come and say, well, your church is legalistic. I have no idea what that means. I have no idea what that means. If that means I wear a tie on Sunday or we sing hymns, I don't know if that means, but nobody here in leadership is legalistic because being legalistic means we do everything so that God will show favor on us and we believe that our actions brings and merits the favor of God. We do not believe that. You cannot earn favor with God by anything that you do. The Pharisees were also hypocrites because even though they outwardly aligned themselves to those law and customs, inwardly they had no devotion or commitment to God at all. So you can now understand why these fireworks are going to ensue because you have Jesus whose mission it is to reach these sinners and the Pharisees who are legalistic hypocrites who feel like he shouldn't be having any participation with them at all. Go back to Luke chapter 5 with me for a minute. Let me walk you through some things we've already seen in Luke. Let me walk you through some Pharisees slash Jesus interactions and show you, just for the sake of an overview, what they did. Luke 5, verse 17. On one of those days as he was teaching Pharisees and teachers of the law. Teachers of the law is simply another way of saying scribes. So these are the same two types of people. These are the ones who copied the law and traditions, all the people I just explained to you. They were sitting there had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Behold, some men were bringing on a... uh, This is... is, We can't read it all because we'll run out of time, but this is the story of the guy who's paralyzed and he's brought through the roof, and Jesus heals him. And then he forgives... First, he forgives his sins in verse 20. Your sins are forgiven you. Verse 21. The scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Look down to verse number 27. Jesus calls Matthew, his name is Levi here in this passage. Verse 29, Levi makes a great feast for him. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table. Again, this culturally was not done. How dare a rabbi eat with sinners? And look what happens. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And now in its context, a verse I read to you earlier, Jesus answered them and says, they that are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. People who think they're okay don't call the doctor. Right? Hey, doctor, I'm calling for an appointment. Oh, what's wrong with you? Nothing. Why are you calling? To set up an appointment. Okay, well, what's the matter? Nothing. Okay, we'll see you. Doctor, what's wrong with you? I have an ailment. I'm sick. I'm throwing up. I got a fever. I got a cold. My arm got cut off by a chainsaw. Whatever it was, you you call the doctor. That was a little gruesome. But you call the doctor because you recognize you have a problem. And these Pharisees did not recognize they have a problem. So Jesus is saying, I didn't come for you. I came for them. 
because they're acknowledging and admitting their sin. Look ahead to Luke 6. I mean, the, the controversies are great. And here he is uh, picking grain on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees said, why are you doing that? Look at chapter 7, verse 37 and following. He, he begins to, uh, he begins to uh, anoint, let a woman anoint him, a sinful woman anoint him. We've, ta- we've preached on all these passages, so just quickly pointing them out. Um, and she anointed him, and, and the Pharisees are upset about it. Verse 39, if, if this man were a prophet, he would not let this woman touch him because she's a sinner, right? Uh, look at chapter 13, getting closer now to where we are in Luke it's, uh, in 15. Luke 13, just a couple weeks ago, we talked about this in verse, uh, let's see here, verse where, he, where he says in verse 31, here's what the Pharisees, they're, they're kind of resorting to other tactics now, saying, get away from here, Herod wants to kill you. For instance, if we can't, if we can't uh, beat you in a religious debate, then we'll try to intimidate you by telling you that Herod's out to get you. Maybe that'll get you away from us because we're tired of your teaching. Chapter 14, they set up the trap uh, with uh, the, the, guy with the, well, with the guy with the dropsy, right? They, they, they set the trap with that man, Dropsy Dan. They say, here, he, he's going to be there and we'll trick Jesus. And once we trick him, we'll have him. And that's just what we've seen in Luke so far. The other Gospels record other occasions where the Pharisees who considered themselves to be morally superior to everybody else and resented and hated and despised the Lord and what he was teaching. But not only that, not only did they despise and hate what Jesus was teaching because he was acting in opposition to them, they hated him because Jesus called them out. It wasn't just that he was embracing sinners, he was exposing them. And there's many places where that happens. Matthew 23, Luke 11. Woe to you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup, but you don't clean the inside. Woe to you, because you're like the, the graveyard where the cemeteries have shrubs and flowers and neatly trimmed and clipped, but we're standing on dead man's bones because that's what's really inside you. Woe to you hypocrites, because you, you count out your mint and your, you count out your basil and you count out your, 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 uh, your, uh, your seeds to tithe but you ignore justice and mercy. You ignore these weighty matters of of having compassion on others. And then perhaps the one I love the best, the dripping sarcasm, where he says to the scribes, I didn't write the chapter down, I just thought of it in my head, and I didn't search it out. He says to the scribes, have you not read in the scriptures? I mean, can you imagine? That is a knockout blow. Folks, this was their job to copy and read and interpret the scriptures. And Jesus say, didn't you read that in that place? I mean, the Lord just, just gives, them a, gives them a sock to the mouth. And they are angry. And the breaking point came for them. We specifically skipped over this. Go to Luke 11. The breaking point came for them when they accused Jesus of doing his miracles in the power of Beelzebub the prince of demons. Look at Luke 11, verse number 15. After he had cast out a demon out of a guy who couldn't speak, some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. The accusation, and we've talked about that before, the accusation is that Jesus is actually satanic in nature. And it is known to us as the unpardonable sin. Uh, 
cannot be committed today. Someone cannot commit this sin today. It was, a, it was a specific sin at a specific time to accuse the ministry of Christ on earth as being satanic in nature. And their hearts were so hard that they could not ever say such a thing unless their hearts were hardened that hard. Towards the end of Luke 11, we're in that same chapter, after this whole conversation, and Luke 11 is very similar to Matthew 23 where it has all the woes upon the Pharisees and he warns them about, he warns his followers about the leaven that is in the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And then in verse 53, after all of this, I mean, look, look, let's look at the end. This is so good. Uh, verse number 52, woe to you lawyers. Those are scribes too, another term for scribes. Woe to you lawyers. That's not an attorney, but it's a person who studies the law. You have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourself and you hindered those who were entering. And that's a powerful punch to the scribes. You have the scriptures and you've taken that away from the people. You didn't enter yourself and you kept other people from coming. So as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Mark 3, 6 says it this way, after Jesus healed the man with the withered hand, that the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. So Jesus rebuking the self-righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, received and welcomed sinners. Now, we've taken a lot of time to set the stage for the parable. Um, and let's recall, in Luke 15, as Jesus has already told two other stories, that all three of these stories contain this main central thought, that God's joy is in reconciling repentant sinners to himself. I... I think, in, I think in pictures, so when we think about that thought, when we think about God and his attitude towards sin and our responsibility and, and what our response is to be to it, we can, we can make a teeter-totter error. Okay? We can make a teeter-totter error in a lot of doctrines. And what I mean by a teeter-totter error is sometimes if we're not perfectly balanced on the doctrine, we go in error one way or the other. We overemphasize one thing or another. Um, for instance, as Derek has been talking about to, us, to us about spiritual warfare and about the attacks of Satan, the teeter-totter error could be on one side, we fear Satan so much that we're quaking and, and we, just kind of, we see Satan in every, uh, in, in every uh, you know, everywhere we go, we, we're just so freaked out. And the other side of error would be, well, we don't even pay attention to him. We, we have no, so the, the proper way to think about him is to have a proper fear, but a proper understanding that, that we are victors in Christ. So the error here is this in regards to God and his response for sin. And the error here is the same as the error was in that day. The error on one side of the teeter-totter is to believe that God's only response to sin is stern judgment and that our favor can only be earned, his favor can only be earned through some meritorious work that we commit. The idea that God is simply an angry, judgmental God of wrath, which he is, but I'm saying if we only emphasize that, we, we, we have a danger of being on that side of the teacher, that, that we have to appease this angry God by doing something. Baptize me, and then I'll be okay. Right? I'll work really hard. I'll try better. I'm really going to change. I'll work hard, I'll turn over a new leaf, I'll start going to church. All that is nonsense. Think God cares about that? 
All our righteousness is as filthy rags. Go ahead, I'll baptize you. You'll get wet. God will not see you now as worthy of receiving his favor. Oh, shoo, they finally went under. Give them grace. That's nonsense. You don't earn grace. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any one of us should boast. The other side of the error, though, is to make light of sin and to think that, to kind of de-emphasize God's wrath and anger towards it. The Bible says God is angry with the wicked every day. The truth of the matter is this, that God hates sin and will punish sinners with unending judgment and wrath, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He will repay them with judgment, with fire. He will do that, but not before offering redemption and forgiveness through his son. And that's the gospel. And you got this life to receive it. We're going to come to a passage in Luke 16 where it's too late for the guy to receive it. There is a great gulf fixed. And you cannot pass from here to here, and we cannot pass from there to there. I believe people in, hev- in hell will be begging for a second chance. And no second chance will come. This is the chance. Our friend Patrick was 36 years old. He's dead. 36-year-olds don't die. You think about it yourself. I'm 40, I'm 50, I'm whatever. You know, that, that the day of death is coming at some point. Kids don't die. Teens don't die. They do all the time. This is not meant to be morbid or foreboding or just life and death matters. And here is the opportunity to receive the gospel. Isn't God good? God is so good. God, God has this position against sin that his holiness demands he takes, and that is he must judge sinners. But has, God has a position towards sinners that he must honor as well, and that is that he loves us. He loves the world. And so he gives us this opportunity to receive forgiveness. But for those who, who don't see themselves as sinners, the good news of the gospel means nothing. They say, I don't need to ask God for something that I've already earned and that I already deserve. And what these parables are illustrating is that God and heaven's response when sinners repent is over-the-top joy. And this gospel message is the, what draws people who are tired of and tired in their sin to gain the promise of forgiveness and fellowship with God. Beautiful. Now, think for a minute. Let's, let's talk now about the parable. It's only 1142, but let's talk about the parable. Okay. Real quick, and we'll come back to it next week. Think for a moment about the lost sons. We're, we're looking at it here. It's familiar. We've read it. There are two, of course, main characters in the parable. There's the younger brother and the older brother. Of course, the father's there too, but the younger brother and the older brother is what I want to focus on. We'll talk much more about this next week. The two groups of people, this is why I focused on it earlier, the two groups of people that have come near to hear Christ. You have the tax collectors and sinners, you have the Pharisees and scribes. In general, it is the tax collectors and sinners who, according to Luke 15, 7, are the sinners who are repenting, and it's the Pharisees and scribes who are the righteous who think they don't need to repent. Which one's the younger brother? It's easy. Which one's the younger brother? The sinner. Which one's the older brother? The Pharisee and scribe. The younger brother represents repentant sinners and tax collectors who drew near to hear the gospel and repent. 
The elder brother represents the Pharisees and scribes, those who are self-righteous, who thought their obedience merited the Father's approval. Now, Jesus told parables to conceal spiritual truth from unbelievers. But I think this is an exception. You think they got the point? You think the Pharisees understood what Jesus was saying here? I mean, it, it, is, it is about as clear as you can get what's going on in this parable. Jesus has two, Think about the context. Jesus has these two groups of people, and he says there's two sons. And the, everybody would know exactly what he's saying. Christ is the shepherd. He's represented by the shepherd. He's represented by the woman. He's represented by the father. And he is the one who rejoices when the lost are found. Now let's apply something here today. Which am I? Am I a repentant younger brother or am I a self-righteous older brother? Powerful punch came through at the end of the parable here. That it can be possible to be close to the Father. In our context, close to the ministry, close to church, even claim to be in love with God, talk religiously, yet be completely out of the touch, out of touch with the joy of heaven because we think our sin isn't that bad compared to the younger brother. Here, here, here's something that's pretty fascinating thought to me. With, with certain exceptions, where are younger brothers of the world at this very hour? Where are younger brothers? That's them. Where are the older brothers? We're right here. We're right here. You know? That's the danger. Very few of us are, in, are probably out there, I mean, there may be few, out there involved in terrible sexual sin, just living, as the scripture says, in this reckless way, totally given over to immorality, idolatry. I mean, there may be a couple in here, but most of us are pretty, we're, we're we memorize in the verses, right? We're singing the songs. The danger is that we can say in our hearts, like, I mean, just to illustrate, we could say, those younger brothers out there, oh, we can't stand them, right? That's the Pharisees' attitude. If they come in here, they better do what we say. They better not run around and they better not act like unbelievers in here get our carpet dirty, say things that might make us ashamed, act like sinful people. I mean, yes, there is a responsibility on us to, to make sure certain things are not said or done. I mean, obviously, it's not going to be someone come in here and commit some vile sin right in front of us without us. But I'm saying, if we want to be like Christ, we have to embrace those younger brothers, those sinful people. Welcome them even if they don't end up repenting. They need to be welcomed and loved. Because if we don't, no matter what we say about how much we love Christ and love the gospel, we are the older brother. We're the older brother. So let this be our lesson. You know, we, we tend to think, my, my sin certainly isn't that bad. All my life I've given myself to the church and to the Father. We're saying the same things the older brother is saying. My sin isn't that bad compared to the younger brother. So the lesson is, could it possibly be 
that I'm a younger brother that still hasn't repented of my waywardness, or that I'm an older brother who doesn't need to because I'm looking down on everybody else. In both cases, in both cases, and this is the beautiful part of the gospel, in both cases, what is the father's response? For the younger brother, he's looking. He's hoping he comes back. And when he does, he runs to him. For the older self-righteous brother, he goes out of the party and entreats him to please come in. The father is the one who would take joy for any of those who would repent. What a beautiful message that is. Let's pray and thank him for it. Lord, we praise you for just the initial thoughts on this wonderful story which illustrates to us the greatness of your grace, that you would have joy to reconcile me, a rebellious sinner, to yourself. God, I tend towards that older brother mindset. I pray that you'd forgive me. Help me to to be as you to the lost, to welcome sinners, to embrace them, to take joy when they repent. Father, help none of us to be relying on our own goodness as somehow meriting your favor, as if a life well lived for Christ deserves grace. We are all in the same sinking ship. We have all wronged you by action and by nature. We are vile, disgusting, wretched worms. And we need your forgiveness. May each one of us evaluate ourselves today and seek that forgiveness if it is needed. In Christ's name, amen.